0: Welcome to Somatopsychics, where we explore the interactions between physiology and psychology. I'm your host, Nancy Brown, strength and movement coach in New York City. In each episode, I interview an expert on the human organism. This episode, I have with me Pat Davidson, PhD, strength coach, traveling lecturer, and author of numerous articles, as well as The mass Books. He's based in New York City and is someone I personally look up to and ask a ton of questions. Pat, thanks so much for joining me today. I've really been looking forward to this. Obviously, we've had a lot of conversations kind of off air, and uh, I'm excited to see what we get into today.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, I'm pretty excited about this too, Nancy. I really appreciate you having me on here, and uh, looking forward to seeing where this goes. So we should have some fun here.
0: Okay, perfect. So you and I talked about how we want to communicate to our listeners the concept of allostasis. So maybe if you could first explain what homeostasis is and then get into
1: allostasis. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And, uh, you know, this stuff all, there's a great resource on this. There's a book that's called homeostasis, allostasis, and the cost of physiological adaptation. That's kind of like the gold standard book to go to for, for the full story, you know, and it's like the full story is always the devil's in the detail and you know, I'll, I'll do my best to summarize and get to the important points, but it's, it's always, I always feel like I'm short-changing the topic when it's like a book that's like 500 pages and well thought through and that whole thing. But uh, a gentleman by the name of Walter Cannon originally coined the term homeostasis, and uh, I believe he, he may have been involved with allostasis, but I think that came a little bit later. But uh, I think that it's important always to define things accurately, you know, And, and I think that once you do that, like things become very clear. So homeostasis, if you just think about like what the breakdown is in terms of the root words from Latin, like homeo is going to be the same and stasis is measurement. So you need the measurement to stay the same. And it really, like, sometimes people think of the entire organism, the entire body, every system inside the body, as belonging to this realm of homeostasis, but that's actually not really true. There's only a select few numbers and and values that you really need to remain in homeostasis or to not waver very far. It essentially means that, you know, we're looking at this particular thing inside your body. And the number for it can't deviate too high or too low. Uh, it's a very tight window, it needs to stay inside. And I think that for most people, the most obvious homeostatic measurement would be internal body temperature. You know, it's like if you've got a sick kid and that temperature changes by three, four degrees, which doesn't sound like a lot, it's a big deal. Uh, so we really need to remain pretty close to that human norm of 98.6. So that's a that's a good one I think for most people to be able to just quickly think about and refer back to. But there are some other uh, fairly obvious ones and, and they're all related around our ability to survive at a very acute level. Like if these things change significantly, you are in peril. Uh, so things like um, oxygen tension inside the body, like you can't allow your oxygen levels to like drastically change. You can't allow your blood glucose to just change so dramatically into a realm that's like dangerous or you could potentially go into a coma. We, we think about this with diabetics where they're managing it uh, through external insulin or mm-hmm. injecting. And, um, but temperature, uh, acid levels, um, blood glucose, uh, oxygen levels at the level of the alveoli are, are all these really major critical things that can't change very much. So there's always like the environment is imposing stressors and throughout our lives we're doing things, we're, we're busy, and <clears throat> I need to make sure that those homeostatic measures don't deviate despite, you know, maybe I'm running a marathon, maybe I'm lifting weights, maybe I haven't eaten for a considerable amount of time. Maybe, 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 there's a million maybes that could come into play. But I can't let those select numbers change very far, and as a result of that, my body has come up with these other things, allostatic uh, measures, that are in place to make sure that the homeostatic variables don't change drastically from a numbers standpoint. So, <clears throat> excuse me, that's really the difference: is that homeostasis can't change. And allostatic systems are in place to come to the defense of those homeostatic me- measures in, if they are threatened by stressors from the world or mm-hmm. from our own body, for instance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that to keep it simple and to just talk about temperature again, you could say that sweating is an allostatic response where I'm able to bring blood to the skin. I'll secrete some of the fluid from the blood onto the skin and when that fluid evaporates into the air, it takes some of the heat that my body produced and carried in the blood and it removes it from the body. Uh, so heat dissipation methods are allostatic approaches that, my, that I've come up with to be able to measure or to monitor and control homeostatic variables. Um, you know, Insulin and glucagon are fairly well-known hormones in relation to blood glucose levels they're again allostatic responses to maintain blood glucose within a very tight window whether I've eaten in a while, whether I've just eaten uh, there's there's all kinds of ways that they have to be able to regulate that on a constant basis so uh, there's you know what what I think is important to get across is the, that that's from a very simple basic level but you could also consider the behaviors that we actually go through in our life as being allostatic measures to maintain homeostasis. Like, you know, you might, and, and really like your emotions and your senses in many ways are allostatic components. Like if I yeah. feel hungry, mm-hmm. that will drive me to execute behaviors where I would acquire food so that I maintain homeostasis in my body or thirst or whatever it is. So um, you know, many of the things that we do in our lives that we don't think about to a very high level are driven by our internal physiology. You know, one of the really prominent quotes from the book that I referenced earlier is that behave, like, like physiology drives behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that's something that people just sweep under the rug. You know, it's like ah, uh, whatever. But it's not a whatever. Like you need to take really good care of yourself, so that your behavior doesn't become erratic. You know, when you've really covered your own bases in your own body and your and in your own life, now all of a sudden, like your life itself just continues to get better. The behaviors that you start to execute are just, you know, they're 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 better than what you would do if you were hungry, tired, angry, or lonely. Uh, so. You know, I think that that's just a a really critical thing that that, uh, it's almost like being a good parent to to a child. Like you take care of them. You'd send them to have things taken, you know, to account for all of these things in your life. And um, we should be, we should treat ourselves appropriately. Take good care of ourselves for that purpose.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking about that first essay in the book, and I can't remember who wrote it. But he talked about uh, blood pressure, right? And how uh, blood pressure... He, he was working in, um, I think, uh, canvassing, and he was going into all these different neighborhoods and, like, noticing all of these health issues in these economically depressed neighborhoods and these neighborhoods that are really, like, have a lot of social strife. And so he started looking into this and discovered that, um, blood pressure is much higher in, for instance, African-American communities, whereas it's not higher in Africa, right? Mm -hmm. In East Africans. And so he posited that there was a social stressor there. Um, and talked about how, for instance, like the thirst for, um, like thirst and like desire for salty food, this was all kind of like driven by the brain wanting to actually raise blood pressure for, for the sake of vigilance. Mm -hmm. And we try to, you know, suppress from, from top down. We try and like change this behavior from the top down and say like, well, stop eating salty foods, stop eating fatty food, you know, that'll lower your blood pressure. But it's like, well, the organism wants to have high blood pressure because it's, fucking oppressed you know what I mean and like anyway if you I don't know if you have any thoughts
1: yeah and you know I think that that uh Robert Sapolsky addresses this topic extremely well uh both in his first book why zebras don't get ulcers Mm -hmm. uh in like you know he he has a lot of lectures that are available online he's done things with the great courses series and his book behave also covers this this topic but you know, ultimately, there is a very specific stereotypical stress response that mammals go through, and, uh, and humans are no different on this front. When we feel as though there is some kind of threat whether, and in, in humans, we can do this better than anybody, you know, like for other animals, it might be that your rival just walked into the same territory that you are. And now all of a sudden, you know, you're worried about whether or not you're going to be in a fight with them or a predator is near you or something along those lines. We can imagine this, you know, we don't even need them to be present. Like we can think about our own mortality and begin this whole process mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm, of creating mm-hmm. this stress response. And the stress response itself is important to understand like what's actually happening under the hood because it's going to lead exactly into what you just said. So I start thinking about how you know my life is going to end at some point and oh my God, this is like this crippling kind of thought and uh, my brain starts going and and what's actually happening is that I'm going to start – actually like ramping up the activity of my adrenal gland, you know, like people Mm -hmm. hear about adrenal fatigue or things related to the adrenal gland, but adrenal and adrenaline are kind of synonymous with each other, you know? So I'm going to start pumping out adrenaline, you know, which is going to elevate my heart rate. It's going to dilate my pupils. It's going to prepare me for action because it needs to like, that's, that only makes sense based on being a wild animal. Why else would I, like if I'm having these feelings and thoughts, it's preparing me for action. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and the adrenal gland itself has two parts to it. It has the, uh, the, the cortex and the medulla, okay? So anytime you hear about a cortex, that's kind of the center part and a medulla can be around that. Um, and when we think about the cortex, you know, think cortisol. You know, cortex, cortisol, The medulla is gonna be where the adrenaline is. And when I'm activating this adrenal gland, I'll have the adrenaline be pumping out from the medulla, but I'll also have cortisol be pumping out from the cortex. And cortisol is the most classical glucocorticoid that we have in our body. Now, when I have all this glucocorticoid cortisol flowing through my system, at a certain point I need to dissipate this stuff. I need to bring it back down to normal levels it needs to be sequestered it needs to be broken down it needs to be processed what's interesting is that the best way to process this stuff is with glucose glucose being present you are going to be triggering yourself to have an appetite for sugar Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that you're bringing in the substance that's actually capable of breaking down this glucocorticoid Mm -hmm. you need to at some point or you would just simply be Gone in this constant kind of state of anxiety and readiness or vigilance or whatever it is we want to call it, but your body knows it has to remove itself from that and it needs to do it by breaking this stuff down glucocorticoids with glucose. And we also will tend, like you said, to need to ramp up blood pressure, which I need to bring more fluid into the blood so that I because I'm telling myself, hey you need to be better at this stress response. You're in this stress response all the time. You need to be better at it. And I need to have more blood in my system to create more pressure. So we're, we're literally giving ourselves these signals that we need to start eating foods with more sugar and more salt in them so that we can help ourselves deal with this process that we're going through, this actual physiological response. So yeah, like the best... Like you're you're trying to solve a problem like backwards in many mm-hmm, ways. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like addressing what's really happening with the person. Like what's causing you to be stressed. It's very difficult with socioeconomically disadvantaged people. Because as humans we're really good at sizing ourselves up compared to other people. And if I'm at the bottom of the hierarchy of humans where I live. That's extremely stressful. Like there's essentially like all animals or at least mammals that we're aware of have dominance hierarchies. Mm-hmm. And you know, you you are like if you are the omega or the beta baboon, you're going to have higher blood pressure and more likely to die of heart disease as compared to the alpha baboon. You know, if the alpha baboon all of a sudden has a rival alpha baboon coming into its territory, it's going to start having some of these same problems, but generally speaking, those at the top of the dominance hierarchy tend not to display as many of these, you know, typical diseases of Western civilization that we think of.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because I remember in um, Zebras, Sapolsky talks about the, like, kind of like a middle-ranking baboon going and picking on a lower-ranking baboon and how that actually dissipates the stress response. And, I mean, you can see this in children all the time, right? Like, I was the youngest kid, so I just go and, like, harass the cat. Yeah. Right? Now, it's like, at the time, you know, you don't know what's going on, or even most adults don't know what's going on, but that's exactly what's going on. Yeah. Right? Kids do it constantly.
1: It's it's really interesting. It's the, it's the concept of the guy kicking his dog at the end of the day. <laughs> right. It really, it's, it, it is that, like, I don't know why that's like this sort of well-known uh, go-to cliche for that, but yeah, you, you like, shit rolls downhill, you mm-hmm. know? And if if that mid-level individual, like sometimes you'll see it like, oh, your boss gets pissed off and now they take it out on you, you know, because they're dissipating stress. They're literally dumping it on somebody else. It's, it's wild stuff.
0: Yeah. But I, I just love that book because it introduces the idea of, you know, behavior regulating physiology. And so if we can just get a little bit into how that influences our jobs as trainers and coaches. Mm -hmm.
1: So I think that, you know, in, in some ways, what we also have to consider is the way that we have engineered our modern Western society so that it removes most of your need to kick in allostatic measures to regulate your homeostasis. Like everything about our world is designed to reduce your need to engage allostatic systems. Mm. So we keep our rooms at quote unquote room temperature so that you neither are sweating nor shivering. So you don't have to kick in any heat allostatic systems. We or you can wear clothes that keep you at the right temperature. You know, if your shower literally is off temperature by for like one second while you're in it, like you're furious at this point in time. Um, you know like we are like our beds are of maximal comfort so that you don't have to roll around as much in the night like you know it's very easy to acquire calories like we're living in permanent summer so to speak from like a hunter gatherer perspective Uh, It never needs to be the wrong light in the room. Like there's so many, when you really kind of get down to it, you don't have to really walk. You don't have to use your muscles anymore to actually have things done. Like you can, we've replaced muscles with machines. Mm -hmm. We are literally replacing our own brains with phones. I don't need to even remember anything anymore because I can simply outsource it. We're outsourcing all of our allostatic measures, and we don't really have to do much in the way of trying to regulate our own homeostasis. Like, you know, people probably think I'm crazy, but I try to wear shorts and t-shirt as deep as I can into the year. Mm-hmm. Because I want to actually continue to use my allostatic systems to regulate my own body temperature. You know, and I kind of like it. I get a kick out of it. You know, but it, it's, 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 I always think about this. like. You know, am I so soft at this point that I wouldn't be able to survive under different environmental circumstances? Because we are incredibly robust animals, like more than most other animals. You know, it's like there's a reason, like the canary in the coal mine thought process, the canary is gonna keel over and die before the humans will. And most animals will in these extreme environments before humans actually start to display physical symptoms and problems or die. so it's, it's just kind of like we're these apex apes that now are not, not challenging ourselves in any way, shape, or form.
0: But are we better able to survive because we have um, mental flexibility and a lot of different behaviors at our disposal?
1: Yeah, I think that we have this capacity to be able to perform motor functions that no other animal can. Like, we have the ability to use our hands in ways to create things that no other animal can. But even purely from the ability to survive harsh elements, mm-hmm. very few other animals are capable of, of doing that. Like, even, you know, horses will die in the freezing cold before humans will. Oh, wow. Um, you know, it's, it's... Other animals are a proxy for us to be able to see whether or not the environmental conditions are, are lethal, potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sled dogs will die before the humans, typically. Um, so it's... It's really tricky uh, to to separate like our our capabilities that we possess due to the power of our brains, but just purely from a physical sense. but it's it I do think it's a problem that we we aren't very good at using allostatic systems anymore. like even endurance researchers had this kind of question before because they were. There, you know, there was this whole talk of like fasted cardio or, you know, should you try ketogenic diets from time to time? And, and it was because like, have we actually gotten to the point where we're not good at mobilizing our own stores to be able to use that? Like I've got all this sugar sitting in my muscles that I could loosen and break off and use as a fuel source. I've got fat around me everywhere but I can't even access it because I'm not good at actually breaking it from where it's stored and putting it into the blood and bringing it to where the working tissues are. Why? Because I have Gatorade (laughs) and like, I'm just drinking, you know, this, what I need for fuel every five minutes or something along those lines. You should have the flexibility to be able to use the stores that are attached to you as well as stores that are coming from the outside it's tricky with highest level performance, but from a health standpoint, I think that having functioning allostatic systems is a really good thing. Um, you know, you're just a more robust animal that's capable of dealing with more circumstances and not psychologically freaking out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think from the perspective of of training people like you know I'm always looking to just sort of tax people's physiology to remove them from the comforts of not needing to maintain homeostasis. Like I'm seeing what can this person tolerate before they go into like absolute freak out mode. And once they kind of go there like okay, we'll back you off cuz like it's going a little bit too far. But I want to gradually move you more and more to the point where you can threaten homeostasis to a greater and greater degree. Um and now your allostatic systems are more powerful because they've gotten used to this, and they're getting they're actually better they're mm-hmm. They're simply more antifragile than they were before.
0: Can you give me an example of which allostatic systems you're talking about?:
1: Sure. so I think that you know uh, the the hormonal systems in general are are allostatic. like you know when you threaten the when you threaten the organism you kick in hormonal systems to be able to basically help put this thing back together again you know, in the aftermath of what you did. So, um, you know, like the protein synthesis response, for instance, you know, you would be, like I, I take a complete beginner and I train them and they basically are, they, first of all, they're rewiring the synapses of their nervous system, which would be kind of like a post-stress allostatic response to make themselves more capable of firing the right muscles at the right time to execute the tasks so that next time it's a little bit easier if it was the same level of stress and threat, which is why I have to kind of up the ante on people. Mm -hmm. You know, so I've been upping the ante and the nervous system has rewired, rewired, rewired. It's taught you to do the task more effectively, but now it's run out of steam. It's basically like, hey, this is about as well as you're going to do this task. What's the next system that I have to kick in? Oh, well, it's going to have to be at the tissue level of the muscles that you're using. So you're going to have to you know, go through this protein synthesis response to actually build bigger muscles so that you've got a bigger engine to be able to drive, drive this with. And you know, you'll know, you go through this, this elevated level of tissue building for a period of time. And it's, it's funny because most people maximize their protein synthesis to about 90% of what they'll ever get to within about six months of training. You know, it's like one of those dirty little secrets. You try not to let too too many people know in the training world, like, yeah, after six months of this, this is about as big as your muscles will ever get. You know, there'll be about 10%, uh, there's 10% window left to grow into, but this is, this is about it. But essentially you're, you're utilizing systems that make the, the threat less threatening, you know, and, and that's where progressive overload and progressive training is just makes perfect sense because... You have to continue to try to drive threat at people, otherwise the systems will never actually come into play to try to enhance that organism's capabilities.
0: Let's talk a little bit about eating, appetite, allostasis, like working with clients. Um, how much you how much you think about this? How much you deal with this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't personally write up any kind of diet plans for people I don't really you know it's not it's not what gets me super excited from the perspective like I like you know I like program design I like training science I like teaching movement and and it's kind of like I know that food can be a huge problem and it's something that is a a critical piece for people you know, I do have approaches that I use, which are probably good because they're so simple that that they can be pretty effective for people without being, being crazy. But, you know, it's funny. Like, I had a, a guy just this week, you know, he, he actually trains pretty hard, and he's looking to get stronger and add some muscle mass. And, you know, he was like, you know, I just, I, I really need to start eating. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you know, I probably eat, you know, on average about like 1.5 meals a day during the, on weekdays. And then on the weekends I'll, I'll get like three meals a day in. And I was like, yeah, you know, like, uh, so, so what meal do you always have? And he's like, I always have dinner. And sometimes I'll get maybe like a luncheon, but a lot of times I won't even get that. And I was like, okay, so you're getting one meal a day. Like you're eating once at the end of the day. And you know, it's like, well, how can we go about fixing this? And, you know, I, I basically said like, you know, there's this classical story about like the Indianapolis Colts strength and conditioning coach who with working with his players. Like we always think that these professional athletes are going to have these amazing everything, but a lot of these guys come from like ghetto areas and like, they, they just happen to be like these specimens that, you know, don't have good habits. They don't have good lifestyle things. And, This guy literally would have a lot of guys that would never eat breakfast and had never eaten breakfast throughout their lives. And he would start them off with a pop tart, you know? So it was kind of like, you know, do you like pop tarts? And the guys, yeah, pop tarts are great. Do you think you could eat a pop tart every morning? They're Like, yeah, I can do that. And it's not like the pop tart is, is like great nutritionally or anything, but it's beginning the habit, the process of like, this person is going to start eating breakfast. And they're going to start eating breakfast in the first week. They have to pay attention to it. You know, they have to, oh yeah, I have to eat this Pop-Tart. But after a couple of weeks, it's just going to be automatic. It's on autopilot. They're going to eat the Pop-Tart every day. Now I can start to have the conversation with them about like, hey, you know, for breakfast, maybe we can do a little bit better than the Pop-Tart. And now they might be open and receptive to it. Because like even though, yeah, Pop-Tart's processed, it's crap, all that sort of stuff but it's still a little bit more calories in a person's life who probably was deficient on calories. So it's, you know, you're literally just beginning the initiation of habit formation, whatever that is. And now that the behavior is in place of this human eats breakfast, now we can modify the behavior to a degree. Modifying a behavior is easier than actually like installing a new behavior. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's always something that I kind of go back to is like, you know, what behavior is missing from the ingredient list that needs to be in place for this individual? Like if it's a weight loss person, I need to like start listening to what they're doing and start thinking about like, well, how does this person get themselves in trouble? And, you know, a lot of times what what we'll get in the city anyways are people that do pretty well during the week and then they go off the deep end on the weekend. You know, it's like drinks and and too much food, wrong food choices, this, that, and the other thing. And it's kind of like, all right, well, you know, on the weekends, where do you go out to eat? Oh, I go to this bar and I watch football, you know? Okay, well, well, what's on the menu at that bar? Well, I don't know. I always get wings. Okay, well, why don't you look at the menu? And I guarantee you there's a salad on that menu and probably like a steak. Okay. How about this time you just order the salad and the steak and they have to think about it in the beginning, but you can make it pretty automatic. Like you start to notice people go to the same places on the weekends. They start, they order the same stuff and they get themselves in trouble the exact same ways. You you might not be able to change where they go and what they do, but if you can just simply inject like, Eat, do this behavior prior to this other behavior getting you in trouble it oftentimes is is something that where you can just kind of because once you're full you're not interested in eating bad food It's mm-hmm. one of the dumbest things in, in the world but like if you're hungry you're gonna make bad decisions so before that comes into play execute this behavior which will nullify something coming down the road after that
0: yeah I'm just thinking a lot about our conversation leading up to this when we were talking about when I was a kid I would take my lunch money and go buy a fruit pie and I was actually a very skinny kid Um, but you were saying like oh that's a really good hunter-gatherer behavior right Um, so I'm, I'm just thinking like you know, when you're working with a person, like how much of this is just kind of like a natural hedonic response that we have evolved to have to calorie dense foods and how much of these kinds of behaviors are actually like something gone haywire, mm. you know, with their, their set point. Right. Yeah. And, and their body kind of hoarding calories. Right. Because there are are all of these things that come into play. Like, so I would eat like an asshole when I was a little kid, I pretty much lived off of carbohydrates Um, and like put four spoons of sugar in my cereal and stuff when my mom wasn't looking, but I was super skinny because I fidgeted constantly and was just like constantly in motion. Right. So I had like a high, uh, degree of neat and, um, you know, I know there are lots of studies showing that neat is just something, you know, something that can really suppress weight gain. Um, in a force feeding study Mm -hmm. I saw,
1: Um, so if you can kind of maybe dig into
0: that a little bit.
1: So, you know, a good hunter gatherer is going to select the most energy dense food. You want the most return on investment for the least investment. I want to do the least amount of work I possibly can and get the most calories back for it. Uh, that, that is the best way to survive if I live in the wild. And we lived in the wild for a long time. We've been, in a civilized manner for very few generations compared to what came before that. So you, if someone somehow had these instincts of like, oh, I'm gonna select the broccoli, like you're, you're dead, <laughs> you're, you're, you're a terrible hunter-gatherer. You're not going to survive long in the wild at all. Like what would keep you alive from a caloric standpoint like, your your taste buds know it anyways. You know, whatever is the most delicious possible thing is probably going to contain the most calories per bite. And, the you know, it's, it's usually these things that are like this combination of simple sugars and tons of fat. Like, fat by itself doesn't taste very good. Sugar by itself is okay, not great. But you mix them together and all of a sudden you have the greatest thing in the world. You have cake and donuts and cookies and pizza and things like that. So it's, you know, that's, now what we have to do is you have to recognize that your system is engineered to keep you alive in an environment that we no longer live in. Mm -hmm. So you have to use your advanced forebrain, your cortical, rational thinking brain to override these instincts. You know, otherwise you basically have almost no shot unless you happen to like, you know, we work in a job where like even... Like I don't even mean to, but I acquire like twelve to fifteen thousand steps a day. You know, I'm picking up other people's weights and moving them. I'm loading their bars for them. The amount of non exercise movement that I'm getting is ridiculous, you know? And then on top of it I have exercise movement. So it's it's like and if I didn't have the lifestyle I do, I would weigh like three hundred and fifty pounds, I think. You know, it would just be, I would be a complete mess. But like, maybe I selected this lifestyle to prevent that. You know what I mean? Like I've always been someone, I always paint myself into corners and throw myself into the fire because I think that the result of that will be in my benefit. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll spend all my money so that I have to force myself to earn more money. Like that's always been my mentality with things. So... You know, it's, it really, like, you know, even talking about little kids and trying to, like, get them to make good... They're never going to make good decisions. They don't have an advanced enough cortex. Their, their logical, rational, higher-order thinking brain that can inhibit these impulses is not even developed. They have no shot. If they see candy, they're going to have the candy. Like, no child has... If you want to know what food that hunter-gatherers would have liked, like, just think about what children get excited about. There's never been a child that's ever gotten excited about chicken, rice, and spinach, okay? But pizza, donuts, and candy, they're gonna go out of their minds. And they're also going to display all the signs of like an addict if you try to take that away from them. Like they will murder you if they're hungry, you give them food that they want, and then you take it away from them. Like they'll have a meltdown. And deservedly so, like that would threaten the survival capabilities of the species.
0: Can you talk a little bit about adaptation with training and how, in order to get adaptation, you actually have to threaten homeostasis?
1: yeah I mean, you know I, I think that from a like during the course of our lives, we mimic in many ways the history of our species from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, and we start off as single cell organisms inside of our mother's womb, you know we Divide into multi-cells and then we turn those cells into specialized cells that become tissues. And, you know, at some point you're an amphibian inside your mother, you're a fish, you're a monkey. Like you you really kind of emulate all of the stages of of human evolution from the beginning up until what we are today. And even after you're born, you know, it still takes time for you to develop into a full-grown adult human. Like you have to literally be molded into what constitutes a functioning adult member of the species. And um, you know, when you look into evolutionary science, what you see is that mutations do take place that, that cause one species to evolve into another species, and it, it takes multiple generations and all of these things, but there is always a difference between the rate of, of, of adaptation and the rate of evolving into something new when there is considerable environmental stress imposed upon the animals during that time period. Uh, it's usually some kind of a climate change thing that's, that's taking place and it seems as though the, the climate change that was taking place in Africa somewhere around two million years ago was one of the real drivers for the emergence of the modern Homo sapien. There was a, uh, a drying that took place uh, on the African continent, and the rainforest receded, and the savanna lands expanded dramatically. And also, there was some kind of a volcanic event that led to the creation of the Eastern Rift Valley that sort of split split a massive territory in, in, uh, in Africa. Anyways, what, what took place was that uh, there's less area of rainforest to be able to easily acquire fruit. Like chimpanzees stay in the rainforest, they just simply eat fruit from trees. When there's no fruit for whatever reasons, chimpanzees will typically go to what are called fallback foods and they'll eat things like leaves and stems and other things that they don't particularly like but they have to during those circumstances. Well, when there were a lot more apes that were kind of that last common ancestor of the chimp and the human lineages, um, there was this massive degree of environmental change and some animals decided to stay in the rainforest and other animals decided to look outward for more types of food that they could acquire. And, and our ancestors decided to do that. And um, you know, in the beginning it was mostly like looking for these underground storage units, like uh, things like yams and, and the sweet potatoes or other tubers that you would have to walk to acquire and then dig up from the ground and carry back to wherever it is that you kind of typically set up shop. But it was it seems as though it was this need to be able to move over larger distances that led to this, you know, us becoming bipedal animals and using our hands in more creative manners. So, I always think about that. Like there this never would have taken place unless it was forced. Like you, you wouldn't choose to do this. You wouldn't choose to find all these new kinds of food. You wouldn't choose to change the shape of your foot from a chimps which looks like our hand with the, th- with the big toe kind of going sideways like a thumb to having a big toe in line, which makes way more sense if you have to propel yourself over farther distances. You would never just do that because you wanted to. You only change if you have to Mm -hmm. and it's the same thing in our lifetimes in our lifespans your body is going to stay exactly the same unless you threaten it to the point where it decides it's more beneficial to spend energy to change itself compared to staying the same so in the back of my mind i'm always like you know, what, what sort of change would my body need to cope with the demands that I'm asking it to, to do? You know, like if I, I, I look at myself and I'm like, if I all of a sudden like forced myself to run 10 miles today, which is the last thing I would ever want to do, my body would probably figure out some way to lose weight. All kinds of weight, all kinds of mass. Muscle mm. mass, water mass, everything. I know that every time I get really heavy and have been like oriented towards strength production and then I decide to do aerobics, like I shit myself for multiple days in a row. It's crazy. It's like my system is like, you need all hands off deck, you need them off deck now. Get rid of this stuff. And it just continues to try to, to drop, you know, it's like literally bailing water out of the ship to be able to keep the thing afloat mm. in these new conditions, you know? So it's, it's all, you know, and in particular, I just think about like, you know, do I need to move my body through space a lot? Do I need to do a lot of pull-ups? Do I need to run? Do I need to do push-ups? The lighter that I am, and in particular, the lower amount of body fat that I have, the easier it is to do those things. And if that is a high enough level of threat then i might change my behaviors to make that threat less i might actually eat less food i might actually start doing these things but it's got to be threatening enough to make me really change you know and like from any kind of workout like if if like i need to threaten people to actually change their behaviors and their lifestyle outside of the gym so that the threat of the gym isn't as great as it used to be Um, and I've had pretty good success with that I've either had great success or the person never comes back and sees me again (laughs) and I'm fine with either of those things because I'm just not a moderate person
0: right now I know that a big thing for you is kind of getting the word out about working hard yeah and um, I remember we had this conversation looking around a room recently asking ourselves uh, how many of these people actually lift weights? Mm. You know, and this is a group of people who should be lifting weights. Um. I guess my approach is right now that I'm trying out is to gain my clients trust and then start kind of heaping on the punishment. Yeah. Slowly, you know,
1: I think as long as it's progressive in nature, it, it works, but also know who you are as a person and what your personality kind of creates. And I just know for me that it's like, most of the people that end up liking me and working with me are also a little bit crazy. <laughs> and it's like, when they're not, I'm like, oh boy, like I'm probably not the right person for this, this individual. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's, uh, there's plenty of other trainers that are really good at, at moderating for people. Um, it's, it's just, and it's, it's, I feel like in some ways it's not like I can't do that, but I get bored. The person knows I'm bored. And then it's just like it's just not a great like relationship uh, component.
0: No, sure. I guess I just worry that um, you know if I don't get them that they're gonna go end up with somebody who doesn't make them work at all. Right. You know what I mean? And um, they're always reacting like when I add weight. I was like, oh, you're putting more weight on them. I'm like, it's never going to get easier. Right. Like, it's literally, you're never going to have an easy session from here on out. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's never going to get easier. Otherwise, what are we doing? Yeah. You know? You that's, can go, that's it, yeah. You can go be free. and <laughs>
1: like, It's tough. You know, I, I mean, I've, I've had these thoughts. Like, as I've pushed my own strength to, like, realms that I didn't think I'd be capable of. You know, it's like, oh, I, this hurts now, this, this hurts. Like, and I always think, is this my organism's attempt to not do what I'm asking it mm, to do? Mm. You know, is it like just so concerned that this is now a bad idea that it's like coming up with these strategies to prevent me from asking it to do this again? And, um, and I think there, there might be something to that, you know? And, you know for other people like they're just like oh my god this is so heavy like they literally can't imagine doing more like this can't suck more and it's like oh this can suck so much more like you have no idea and it kind of has to like you like i think that most people need to learn in some way how to embrace the suck and like reframe their perception around it because otherwise it's just like Like, I remember when I was in school, like, I was a problematic behavior student, like, in middle school and high school. Yeah, me too. And, you know, it was like I was constantly getting in trouble. Like, grades would be problematic sometimes. And I remember, like, people in my family were like, listen, you got to go there anyways. You might as well figure out some way to change your perception of it so that you enjoy it. And I was like, I have no retort to this. Like, that's actually pretty accurate. And it was kind of like, yeah, but I like being a problem. And they were like, well, what's that going to do for you in the end? Like, yeah, you can be a problem, but you're just, you know, you're cutting off your nose despite your face. And it was like, can you think of any other way where you can still, like, make it a a time and a place that you like being in without sabotaging yourself? I couldn't at that age, but, you know, I understood the message. And I think it's the same thing for a lot of people that are going to the gym, it's like, listen, this is gonna, if you want, like, cause if you tell me that you don't really have goals, I'm cool. Like we can just like go for a stroll and be quote unquote healthy or something like, you know, but, but if you're telling me that you actually have these goals of like, Hey, I want to look different. I want to lose fat. I want to gain muscle. I want to hit these quantitative numbers or whatever it is. It's like, Hey, I can bring you there, but you got to understand that you're going to have to sacrifice some things along the way. Like, you're going to have to sacrifice this feeling good in the acute moment. Like, you're going to have to potentially sacrifice flavor or feeling full or something. But Mm -hmm. if you're telling me you really want this, like, we'll get you here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that is just getting people get removing ambivalence, right. And getting people to actually look at their ambivalence. Cause we always have ambivalence about goals. I mean, I have ambivalence all the time. What you're talking about, about like, uh, you know, when you start having pain, maybe this is my organism saying like, lay off. Like I, I, I don't even, you know, I'm not training nearly at the level you are. And I have that kind of shit all the time. I'm like, oh, I, I can't like, you know what I mean? Like my, my hip is bothering me, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I'm probably fine. You know, I probably need to just go train. But, um, I guess like removing the ambivalence for people, like I had a client who was really, she was really like showing up for her workouts. You know, she was like an athlete when she was younger, she's overweight. She's really showing up for her workouts, um, and working really hard. And like, losing weight very slowly that was her goal right and i finally talked to her and i was like why are you like what's going on like what's the payoff and like holding on to this right and holding on to this weight and like staying the same and um, and i said i just want you to go home and journal about that right we don't have to have a therapy session about it just go home and think about it and she's just dropping weight like twice as fast now it's crazy Mm -hmm. like over the past three weeks it's fucking crazy
1: the like stories since, people since tell themselves about themselves are prisons you know I mean I've got clients where I can think of one guy like trying to get him to lift weights up to what his capability is is impossible because of the stories he tells himself right. that he'll vocalize during sessions like oh you know I'm, I'm just a little guy it's like um, you're a normal sized adult male like, and and you can't Like you don't see the way that you're lifting this weight, but it's actually pretty easy for you. Like what you are perceiving as being hard, like you are moving this thing so fast and like you stop when it's the tiniest bit of a struggle, but that's not even the close to the kind of struggle that you could actually go into. You just, you just don't know because of, of some kind of internal monologue that's sabotaging you.
0: Yeah, and this is something I really have to drive home to my clients is that how it feels doesn't really matter. Mm. I'll tell you if it's hard or not. Yeah. Because I'm watching you move, and I know what hard looks like. Yeah. You know? and But you have to get them to, to trust you first, yep. right? And so you got to kind of move into that territory this uh, is where uh, with I think, care. I right? think
1: that this is one of those few areas where technology can be useful. Like, so many people are so reliant on technology, but, like, you know, there's some devices that measure the velocity of the of the bar as you're mm-hmm, moving it, like mm-hmm. gym aware and things like that, and um, you know, it it will tell you basically like when the velocity is here, like you've got like one rep left, right? You know, in yeah. reality, oh, yeah. And when you can start showing people like you're stopping at this velocity, and this velocity is actually indicative that you've got like four more reps left, they're like, oh, uh, that's weird. And you can also show them like listen, like, you can move this thing faster. You're actually only moving it at this velocity. And then you did, like, 10 more. Like, move the thing faster and then give them that feedback because a lot of times they just have no awareness. And it's like, I don't know how to verbally give them that, but that number, when you show it to them, has so much power.
0: Oh, wow, I love that. No, my method has been to uh, show people a video of me doing a squat at a powerlifting meet where I virtually stopped mm-hmm. and then kept moving the bar. And I'm like, this is what a one RM looks like. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just so that they understand like a one RM is where you're almost like not conscious. Yeah. Do you know what I mean?
1: Like you can't hear anything. Like, like <laughs> <Right>. Sound. <laughs> exactly. It's like exactly. saving private Ryan on the beach. <laughs> exactly. Like
0: <sighs> exactly. But I mean, you know, it's just getting people, you know, slowly like getting them, to the point where they can experience that right because you're not going to get somebody there in the first session yep,
1: right not even close and they'll still get a training effect
0: right that's incredible
1: like as you get more and more trained you have to go farther and farther towards that place Mm -hmm. and for everybody there's just i i for most personal training clients i just see see it as a psychological i'm just trying to shift like this psychological meter of how far they're willing to go towards that place. right? And it's usually like there's so much room to expand into even for people you've been working with for a while. Mm-hmm. and Because I notice it in myself. You know, it's, it's like it comes out of me during competition. Like when there's other people where I'm like this person shouldn't be able to do as much as me. Like I can't let this happen. And then all of a sudden I'll like have my next set is like a personal record. And it's like, or there's somebody that I'm chasing and I'm willing to do almost anything to catch them. You know. And so it's like that motivation, which can be like right on the border of like what you're aware of and what you're unconscious of. You know, it, mm-hmm. it kind of, I think that's super helpful. Like I always look at competition as being something incredibly helpful for giving us the ability to start to have people move that psychological meter. And also, t- technology and data can be helpful on that front it's i 'm always like I, I feel like with technology a lot of times people are using it, but they don 't know why they're using it I, I'm trying to create i 'm trying to drive someone towards something as a result of giving them these numbers i 'm not just collecting numbers for no reason
0: yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your concept that you're yeah undertaking here at hype
1: so it's it's going to utilize um, equipment that's made by the Kaiser company in California and um, and their resistance training equipment utilizes pneumatic resistance which is air pressure based and um, you know some of it is is like kind of a combination of classical resistance training like we can have a barbell and hook it up to cables that have air resistance pulling down on the barbell Um, and others are just single piece pieces of equipment like a a chest supported row where it's just air resistance but uh, we have a couple of their pieces here now and and as you're familiar with like it will show you the power score for every rep uh, which takes into account the force like the weight that's on the piece of equipment the distance that you move the the thing through and the speed that you do it at Um, so power is a great variable because it you know classically the way that we track volume is just weight on the bar times reps times the number of sets that I did it for, and volume usually is indicative of like the rate of adaptation that the person will experience. But that kind of barbell volume falls short of a couple of variables. Number one, it falls short of range of motion, and it also falls short on how fast you move the bar. So power to me is just a more accurate volume tracking metric compared to what we've traditionally used. Mm -hmm. And what we're also going to be able to do with this is like if you're doing a squat and you've got the bar hooked up and it knows how much weight is on the bar and it's measuring how fast you move it and it measures the distance that you move it, it'll do that for all let's say 10 reps of this set. And I can tell the system Nancy's gonna do 10 reps here Uh, and she's gonna do 10 reps at every station. It will take the average power that you did for that set and it can put it up on a scoreboard so that you can see it. And then you could move on to the next station. Maybe it's a, a chess supported row or a military press or a bench press or a deadlift or whatever the next thing is and it would do the exact same thing. And then it would sum station one to station two. You could do whatever workout you wanted to do and it would just sum set to set and exercise to exercise. And at the end of it, you would see your accumulated power score for essentially a mixed-mode resistance training experience. Mm -hmm. You know, things like Flywheel have been pretty successful where it's kind of like, hey, we measured your power output while you were riding a stationary bike for a spin class, which is kind of cool, but I think that if you were able to do a resistance training session with multiple stations and all kinds of different exercises, and it gives you your combined power output for that, that's like the nuclear bomb version of that same concept. And also, like if you do the same workout, you could be able to track your power from session one to session two to see if you're actually making progress. And um, I think that most people, when they're able to see themselves improve, it's tremendously motivating to continue to do it. Or if they see themselves not improved, they can start to actually question like, Why did I not do well this week compared to last week? Oh, well, maybe it's because I got like one hour of sleep last night and I didn't eat any food or Mm. blah, 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 blah. And it's amazing how many people don't make these um, super simple connections to their life and their output, you know? And it's kind of like, that's where technology has been important for me in the past, like you know, hey, look at this score on la- last Thursday. That was so much lower than anything for the last three months. What happened last Thursday? Oh, my kid was sick and I didn't sleep and my boss was angry at me and blah, 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 blah. And, and it's like, yeah, your scores actually stayed low for like a week after that. Like, that's, that's kind of interesting. Like, maybe we should be aware of that. And, but people are completely unaware until things pointed out to them. And I just found numbers are, when they're visually displayed to humans, become incredibly important. Like school never mattered until report cards started to be handed out. And now this report card matters a lot and it's possible that that could change their behaviors. So everything to me comes down to like, what can I use as a tool to change behavior uh, in the, both in the gym and out of the gym to drive people towards better physiology overall. And I just think better physiology leads to this cyclic process of better behaviors in your life, which feeds back. Everything always feeds back in a positive manner or a negative manner. And I'm looking to get people into these positively spinning loops for their life.
0: Yeah, I love it. Well, I'm super excited to see this concept put into practice here. And um, thanks so much for, for being here with me. And... We'll talk soon. Thank you. That concludes today's episode of Somato Psychics. If you enjoyed what Pat had to say, I've got great news for you. He teaches every Wednesday at 1 p.m. at Hype Gym, Union Square. And if you can't make it in person, the sessions are streamed live through the gym's Instagram, at HypeUSQ. And those streams are available for 24 hours after. Special shout out to Hype, which is where Pat and I both train our clients, and where we recorded the episode. Show notes with links to Pat's site as well as to some of the books referenced will be available at www.trainwithnancy.com podcast. If you want to check out my own writing on fitness, gender politics, and embodiment, that's also all up on trainwithnancy.com. Next episode, I've got Jane Clapp, educator and movement coach, who's going to talk with us about movement for trauma. If you don't want to miss it, please subscribe. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review. Until then, be well, my fellow organisms.